This morning we are continuing a series called The Followers. The Followers are those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. There are many of them the uh, direct disciples or apostles that he called. We'll look at some other followers of Jesus as well. This morning we're going to look at the life of Thomas. Thomas is often referred to as the doubting Thomas. So I'm going to begin with a question this morning. And the question that I would like for you to reflect on for just a moment, because it's going to have relevance as we go through it. What are those areas that you have doubts about? Where do you doubt certain things? It may be that some of us doubt God. We're not sure He understands my needs. We're not sure He really loves me. Uh, We're doubting that He really understands where I need to go in my life. We're doubting maybe whether I'm going to find the job in the time that I need to find the job. I doubt that I'm going to get the raise or I doubt uh, that I can overcome this cancer or other disease. I doubt that my children are going to walk with the Lord. It seems like we pray and pray and no results. Think about for just a moment in your mind's eye and maybe write it down in the outline that's available for you in the bulletin that will follow along this morning. What do you doubt. Where are your doubts today? Just think about it. I'm just going to stand here, be myself, my pretty little self up here. And you think about those doubts. Right now, I, I doubt that we need Ron with Michael W. up there singing the way he does. I Whoa. <laughs> Should we get the loose noose now and hang, hang me up? And uh, Ron, you're obviously well loved here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this has suddenly gone in a direction that I had not planned. That's what happens when you say things you hadn't really thought about until the, about two minutes earlier. We love Ron. Where do you doubt? Got it? Sort of fixing your mind, unlike me. Uh, you got it all? Okay. Think about these things. I want us to go down this road. I'm going to go very quickly on some of these early portions of the outline that is available for you. But I wanted to highlight very quickly that there are three areas that Satan loves to create doubts in our minds. I want to give full benefit to the satanic evil one who, who knows how to create doubts. He loves doubts. He makes his business, his profession to cause doubts. Here are the three areas. You see them on the outline. And in the text that we have given in Genesis chapter 3, we love this text because it outlines the strategy and the thinking and the plans of Satan. In Genesis 3.1, we read this in the Garden of Eden. Everything's perfect. Adam and Eve following Jesus' rules up to this point. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden. The first area of doubt that Satan loves to create in your mind, frankly in my mind, I doubt God's Word. I doubt that I can trust God's Word. I doubt that God's Word is true. I doubt that God's Word is going to lead me the way I need to go. We see evidence of that all, you know, the whole thing about in Houston, you probably read about that, where the totalitarian stylistic mayor and her city council are trying to shut down pastors who preach the Word about certain areas of life and speak against things like men using women's restrooms. And, you know, it's like, wow, what, what, a, what, a, what a crazy idea. And yet you get in trouble for opposing it. You, you create doubts 
that I should preach the Word. I doubts that we should believe the Word. Doubts that I can trust the Word. Satan loves to create doubts that the full counsel of God's Word is actually true and relevant. The second area of doubt are doubts that certain sins are really wrong. He goes on to say as he speaks to Eve there in the garden, the woman said to the serpent, You from the fruit of the tree of the gardens we may eat, and from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden of God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. You can disobey God and not pay a price. You can walk in sin and get away with it. There are certain sins that are now okay, and you don't have to feel any concern for repercussions or consequences of those sins. We live in a world today where Satan has created doubts that certain sins are really wrong. And so he creates this mindset in Eve that you can eat of that tree and you're not going to die. Come on. This is the zero generation. Let's get with it. The third area of doubt is this. I doubt that God's plans for me are good. It says there that Eve, when she ate of the tree, when she woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. It made her feel good. It made her feel happy. It made her feel satisfied. When she suddenly took charge, disobeyed God, ate from the tree, she suddenly realized, I'm smarter, I feel better, life is improving. What Satan loves to do is to create in our mindsets that if I sort of go off the, sort of the pathway that God has for me, I no longer recognize those as sinful behaviors. I can do those things now. I'm not going to pay a price for it. I find that, frankly, my life feels happier, more fulfilled, more satisfied. I feel like I have better control. There is a subtle deception that creates in our hearts this doubt that God's plans are really best for me when I realize that I can get away with doing my own thing in disobedience to Him. And there's no price to pay. So remember these three areas of doubt. They are a constant. From the beginning of time, Satan wants to create doubts that I can trust God's Word, doubts that certain sins are really wrong, doubts that God's plans are best. That's a sure thing, if there's ever a sure thing, of the doubts that Satan wants to create in our minds and our hearts. And so there are dangers that come with those doubts. The danger, very quickly, is that some people will judge people with doubts. I just chose Matthew chapter 23, I'm going to go into it, but Matthew 23, Jesus rakes the Pharisees over the coals as he lambasts them for their judgmental attitude. And although the Pharisees don't express doubts, they shut down any contrary opinion. The Pharisees wanted this authoritarian style of religion where we shut down dissent. They were totalitarians. They were Stalinists before Stalin even existed. They wanted to control the Jewish people and their thought process. And no one dare question our 600-plus laws because we know what's best. Well, that sort of judgmental attitude sometimes happens even in parents who are good Christian parents, where we have children come to us and ask and express doubts about Christ and God and the church and what we have believed all of our lives. And the damage is done when parents shut down dissent 
and do not allow this kind of dialogue. And there's a judgment that is passed on those who express such doubts. That's deadly. That's the danger of doubts, that we become judgmental against those that do create doubts. Secondly, the danger of doubts is that my heart will become hardened. I will become cold and darkened. I will not have an openness to what God wants to do. And I read in Romans chapter 1 that we looked at not that long ago. In Romans 1, as I turn to it, you might want to look at it as well. But Romans 1, 21 through uh, 23, it says this. For even though they knew God, see, they knew God. They had truth. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, who God is, the image of Him, into the form of corruption of man, of birds, and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God gave them over. They knew God. They did not give thanks to God. They professed to be wise, but they were fools. And God gave them over. That passage really haunts me. As I think about the many people, as many of you do, as I'm sure as well, that we pray for regularly that are not walking with the Lord, that have fallen into the deception of, of the doubts of the evil one, and we want to reclaim them, we want to bring them back, we want them to see Jesus and know Jesus like we do. But their doubts persist. They know God, but they don't respond to God. And there comes a point, and I don't know when that point is, when God gives them over to that. In Jeremiah 11, in Jeremiah 11, God says to the nation of Israel, I've given you chance after chance after chance. You have refused my invitation. I'm going to give you over. In fact, he says to Jeremiah, don't even pray for him anymore. I will not hear your prayers. I'm done. And what God did in those days is He gave Judah, the, northern, the southern tribes of Israel, He gave them over to Babylon, and, and Israel ceased to exist. He later reclaimed them, so there is always hope. But it tells me there comes a point where God says, you know what? We're done. And I don't want people to get there, so we encourage ourselves to do the things that I'm going to talk about in just a moment. And then the danger of doubts is that I become susceptible to false teaching. And Genesis 3 is that. Eve had doubts, and so she just fell into this trap. And there's a lot of false teaching out there. There's a lot of false prophets. There's a lot of pastors that aren't preaching the Word. There's just a whole lot of that going on. So we become susceptible to that. But let me get to the part that I like the most of this. When doubts are good. When doubts are good. Do you realize that doubts can be good? They are a healthy thing. Let me take from the life of Thomas. In John chapter 14, John is the only one that talks to us about Thomas. And John chapter 14 is one of the most familiar passages in Scripture. We love to use these at funerals, for example. And John 14 is the story of uh, Jesus when he's with his disciples in the upper room. He's about to die on the cross days later. Here's what he says. He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
for I go to repair a place for you. He's going to create heaven for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. So he, Jesus, in this last discourse with his disciples, before he dies, he says, I want to reassure you. I want to give you hope. There is a place I'm going to. It's going to be a mansion place. You're going to have a place to live. And I'm not going to leave you alone in that. And so he's laid out this beautiful picture of, of heaven and his preparation for heaven. And you know the way where I'm going. And then there's somebody of the disciples, like in a lot of our classes, he, he raises his hand. Uh, Rabbi, question. And here is the question that Thomas asks. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? How do we know the way? Jesus, Jesus, we love the talk. Think about mansions, that's pretty inviting. But I got a few questions about that. I'm not sure I get it. I don't fully understand it. It's not making sense to me. And so of all the, the 12 disciples, one raised his hand, Thomas, and he asks this question. Now, if I'm Jesus, and I've just given this hopeful message, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. I'm hoping for conviction, commitment, following. Yeah, let's get on board. I'm ready. Let's go. But not Thomas. Thomas begins to sort of maybe create a little doubt amongst even the other disciples. Yeah, that's right. We, we don't really know. We don't get it. We've been living with you for three years, and we still don't get the big picture. How patient Jesus is. So Thomas asks the question, and he says to Jesus, says to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. One of the great verses of the Bible. Now here's the application. Whether you're a parent, a teacher, a co-worker, a friend, a pastor, and you think you've laid out everything for the last three years and you think you've done a very good job, you've really set the table for people to understand and get what you want and what you believe God wants, and you've, you've gone exhaustively down that road, they still may ask a question that says, my goodness, haven't you been listening to me? If I'm Jesus, for three years I've been living with you guys trying to convince you of this truth. And now you still don't get it? Come on, Thomas. How dare you ask me that question? No, that's not Jesus. I might be prone to do that, but that, that's not Jesus. Jesus, Thomas, in essence, that's a good question. Now let me respond. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father but through me. So how do we know the way, Thomas? I'm the way. And Thomas has nothing to respond to that. But what I love about that is the practical application. When you and I want to help people who have doubts, we don't judge them. We don't shun them. We don't deny them. We engage with them. Let me talk to you about that. I remember just, a, just a, uh, this, this past year, there was an interesting interview that was uh, conducted with Susan Sarandon, who's an actress, and she's a liberal activist, and, and she is into practicing uh, spiritual, uh, new age kind of meditation. But she had an upbringing in some sort of organized church religion. 
And she says, I still remember when I was in elementary Sunday school and I asked what they called inappropriate questions. And every time I asked a so-called inappropriate question, I was shut down. So now I've given up on organized religion. I'm creating my own. And she has. Sort of a spiritual new age meditation sort of a thing. The most damaging thing we can do to those who express doubts is to shut them down. We engage with them. How patient Jesus was. So, doubts can cause me to ask relevant questions to know the full truth. That's good. If you've got questions about God, you've got questions about your health, you've got questions about is He going to provide for you? Are you going to find a job? Are you going to be able to make ends meet? Uh, the relationship's going to heal up? Are you, is He going to restore the marriage or uh, uh, rebuild the relationship with the parent or the child? Ask those questions because it begins to create answers that won't be there if you don't have the audacity and the boldness like Thomas to raise your hand and say, God, I have a question. Would you respond to me? And the second part of that is this. A second doubt that brings about good is this. When he was speaking to the disciples, doubts are expressed freely in a community in love and grace. So we turn over to John chapter 20. And John chapter 20 is the other incident where uh, the Apostle Thomas is uh, best seen and where his doubting Thomas comes into play. Let me read the text. I'm going to read in John chapter 20 verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So this is after the crucifixion, after he died, he is resurrected to life. He comes and visits his disciples who were gathered together on the first day of the week, maybe in that same upper room where John 14 just occurred, and he says, Peace be with you, as he stands in their midst. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. They have holes in them. So he still has a perfectly new resurrected body, but he has the scars of the crucifixion. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Finally, thou, they believe fully in who he is and what he claimed. So Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. Retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So he commissions them to go out. But then here in verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, Didymus means twins. We think that Thomas might have been a twin brother or twin sister that he had in his family. He was not with them when Jesus came. Where was Thomas? We don't know. Why wasn't he there? They're all there. He's not there. He missed the opportunity. So you never want to miss an opportunity to meet Jesus. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I read that over and over and thought about that. One of the beautiful things about that particular situation is that Thomas is in a community of men that love him. They have seen Jesus. They're convinced of the truth of the resurrection of Christ. They know the truth. They've seen evidence of it. They've touched the body of Jesus. They've seen the scars on the hands and the side. They know the truth. 
Thomas stands there and says, unless I see it, I won't believe. I don't know whether the other disciples would have believed if they hadn't seen it either. So frankly, they all may have been doubting disciples at that point. But Thomas says, no, I don't believe. And what I, what I love about that particular situation is that it's doubts expressed in a community of love and grace. That's where it needs to happen. We need to create a place like this upper room where people can come and say, I, I don't believe that. I have questions about that. I know you're convinced, but I'm not. And then we don't judge them. We don't deny them the ability to ask questions about it. We don't shun them. We don't shame them. We engage with them. And we surround them with this love and grace that says, let's, let's interact on the issues that you are struggling with. And that's why I come back to this whole thing on the, uh, let me just pick up on the generation project. I shared with you on an email that I sent out this last week. If you didn't see it, here is a little quick summary. A study was conducted by the Fuller Youth Institute by two people who teach at Fuller Seminary. And in that study, they analyzed high school students. And they found that 70% of high school students have high doubts. And what are their doubts? Their doubts are these. I doubt that God exists. I doubt that God loves me. I doubt that I know how to live the true Christian life. I just have doubts about about whether Jesus is the only way to heaven. Those are significant doubts. Seventy percent have those doubts. Of those seventy percent, only one or two percent have ever had an opportunity to dialogue with anyone about those doubts. And the study also found that seniors in high school who had those doubts and had the opportunity to dialogue about those doubts in a safe place went on to college with a deeper and more mature faith than those who did not. The numbers are very minuscule. One or two percent have that opportunity to go on into college where they're going to be bombarded with all those satanic doubts. Trust God. Trust God's Word. Sins aren't really sins anymore. All that's going to be bombarded in college, in the public school arena. And so therefore it tells me that if 70% of high school students have doubts and only one, two, or two percent have an opportunity to dialogue about those doubts, we as a church have an obligation and a duty to create places and venues and opportunities for students to express and work through and process and dialogue about those doubts. Often it can happen in the home. Moms and dads who go to church like us, they can talk about it. But even in those homes, trust me, even in those homes, those children won't always talk to mom and dad because sometimes there's an emotional disconnect. Sometimes there's an emotional overbearing. There's an inability to receive the kind of doubt criticism that may come. And so therefore you go to a third party where there are volunteer leaders, pastors at a church like Calvary Church where that dialogue can occur, where doubts can be expressed and there's no fear of recrimination or judgment. And what they found in this study was 70%. The number one solution, they said, of those doubting students, the number one solution was to create a safe place 
for students to express their doubts and work them through. Because we know the truth. But simply because the other disciples knew the truth, it didn't make Thomas know the truth. So Thomas still expressed doubts in that community of love and grace. And that's where we're going to go to the next point. But we need to provide safe places where that can occur. That's why we're so committed to this kind of project, so that those kinds of opportunities can be taking place in a setting that feels natural and comfortable and it's safe. It looks like you expected me to come. So that's part of the Generation Project and why it's not just another fundraising program. It is truly an opportunity to minister to the generations that follow me. And you know, I don't know whether you can tell or not, but I'm over 60 years old. Maybe, maybe it's hard to tell from where you sit. If it is, you need to get your eyes checked. And one thing I've become increasingly aware of is I've gone over the threshold of 60, which used to be how old my parents were. When I went beyond 60, and now that I'm well into my 60s, but not that far, (laughs) it's hit me. My life is, for the most part, beyond its peak. It's beyond... It's extension. I have less time to death than I had before birth. And so therefore I have a shorter period of time in what therefore should be my priority. My priority is to build into the generations that follow. That's my highest priority. That what I invest, I invest in not for me. Because I am so thankful and gratified for what God has done for me. But now the investment is for those that follow me. So that there will be a legacy of those who say, yes, I too had doubts, but now I've come to know the truth. That's where we go. The third thing that happens then when these doubts are expressed is that doubts move God to reveal the full truth, so I believe in Jesus. This is what I love about Jesus. When I express doubts, it creates questions. When I express doubts, it's done in a community of grace, number two. But number three, when I express doubts and the good can come from it, it moves God to come to me. God says, I I want to answer those questions. I want you to understand. God's not up there holding back saying, you know, I'm going to really hold back on you because I really want you to have lots of doubts and lots of anxiety in life. I love it when those who claim to trust me have high anxiety and high doubts. God's not like that. He says, I want to resolve it for you. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus then shows up. As you read on in the text, Thomas makes his big statement that I won't believe unless I put my hands in, in uh, the, the nail prints and in the side. So in verse 26, eight days later, they are gathered together again. His disciples were again in verse 26 inside, but this time Thomas is with them. And Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you, as he said earlier, eight days earlier. And then Jesus looks at Thomas. And if I'm Jesus and I'm looking at Thomas, boy, I want to give him the old, uh, you know, evil eye. You, you reprobate for not believing. No, that's not Jesus. Jesus turns to Thomas. And he knew what Thomas had said. So he says, reach here with your finger. See my hands? Reach here your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. I don't even know that Thomas ever even touched him. I love that about Christ. 
that when we express doubts, Jesus is just waiting for an opportunity to move to us, not away from us. Jesus is waiting for an opportunity to come alongside us, not to judge us. God moves towards those who express doubts with a willing heart to know the truth. God loves that. If you have doubts, but you have a willing heart to know the truth, I expect God to move towards you and with you. Let me give you an illustration. I love to read the letters that come from our missionaries. This just two days ago, or actually it was Thursday, I think it is, I read uh, David and Heidi Coombs' missionary letter. And in their missionary letter, they included a letter that came from their son Steve, who had been doing some work in Turkey. We hear a lot about Turkey these days. We hear a lot about Syria these days. We hear a lot about Iraq these days. Well, he had been working in Turkey, and uh, one of the things that they would do, I think it was once a week or so, they would go to this uh, location where homeless people would come and they could provide food and care for the needs of those people that are there. Some of the people that were coming there were the Kurds. And the Kurds, uh, this particular group, I may not say it correctly, but the Yazidis, Yazidis, as we've heard about them, they are the people that were trapped on Mount Sinjar, remember? And we bombarded around them to protect them from ISIL or ISIS or Islamic State, whatever their name is, they're attacking them. Well, one family called the Tekel family from Mosul in northern Iraq, they fled into Turkey because they saw what was happening. And they are one of those families, the ten people, that showed up at this sort of this homeless refuge place and Steve was there to help provide for them and they had no place to go. So Steve and his friend have an apartment so they invited all ten family members to come and live with them in their two-bedroom apartment. They found an extra bed, threw it in the other room and so the ten of them lived in this apartment with Steve and his friend. And instead it turns out that they were singers. They were professional singers in Iraq. So we had a great time. Every night we'd be singing and we'd be dancing and they'd be serving us tea. He says, I felt like I was having a party every night with these guests that are with us. Never realized how good it would be. And Steve remembered that he had a DVD on the life of Jesus, the Jesus film, Jesus Project. So he pulled out that DVD and showed them the Jesus Project film. And so it was intriguing and it just happened to be in the Kurdish language. So he shows this video to them. Well, one of the Takil family comes up to him afterwards and says, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, Jesus. Could I go to church with you? And Steve says, absolutely. So they took one of the family, they went to church together. So this family member comes back to the rest of the other nine members of the family and he tells them about church. Church is great. The music is amazing because they're musicians. And so they all got excited and they said, what are the rules? Can anybody go to church? Can we go to church? How does this work? So Steve began to explain to them about what church is and who Christ is and those types of things. And then this happened. As they were having that conversation, some of the two sisters were... Ca- two of their sisters are still on Mount Sinjar where Isa was coming and they did all sorts of horrible things to the women. And they said, let's pray for the two sisters. And here's what Steve wrote. After a a week, we heard the news of a miracle. All of their sisters were out of immediate danger. Thousands of Yazidi women have been sold into slavery by ISIS, and yet by God's grace, their kidnapped sister was released. 
Many of those trapped on Mount Sinjar died of thirst, but both their sisters escaped to the Kurdistan, and I had never seen the power of prayer so vividly. Shortly after that, Ali, one of the members of the ten that were with him, told me he needed to talk to me about something important, so he told me this story. Ali said, The other night I felt really sick. I tried everything to feel better, but nothing worked. I finally went out into the balcony and told Jesus that I wanted to meet him. Immediately I felt a presence surround me and heard a voice saying, Drink water. So I did just that. And right away I felt completely better. I told my wife and she said she wanted to meet Jesus too. She had had pain in her side all day, but when we prayed about it, the pain stopped. When we told them the story, Steve, this is Steve now, when we told them the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and how Jesus described himself as the living water, that night, Exali had a dream where Jesus came and talked with her at length. I believe in Jesus because I know he loves me, she said. After all of this, Ollie asked us to teach him how to read the Kurdish Bible, and he's been reading it ever since. I've heard stories of Jesus revealing himself through dreams and visions in different parts of the world, but this time it was happening right in front of me. The story is not over. We do not know the future that holds for the Takalis. Dezan told me that they feel like birds without a nest. God continues to work in their hearts, and he will bring about his will in his time. And I never imagined I could do anything to stop the monstrosities of ISIS in Iraq. I cannot run across the border and end this war, but I was able to entangle my life with one beautiful family. In doing so, they became like a family to me. And Exdali's last words to me before saying goodbye, We love you, brother. And I responded, You are my sister. It's two days ago. I got that. That's a wonderful story. But I want to give you hope that when we express doubts, God moves towards us. When the Kurdish people say, I want to know Jesus, but I don't really understand Jesus, the church, what's the deal? God moves towards them as well. And when that happens, our doubts, God teaches us. And our doubts begin to erase, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. We may not see, but we still must believe. When doubts are in my heart, there's a lot of good that can come. Think about the doubts that you were thinking about at the beginning of the message where I stuck my foot in my mouth about Ron. Think about those doubts. And what good do you want doubt those doubts to create? What questions do you have for God? What community of grace can you express those in? Expect God to move towards you in those doubts and come with a willing heart that says, Lord, reveal yourself to me as God did it to the Yassidi people in Turkey, I do believe He can do it for us in Orange County. Would you reflect upon that? And we're going to sing and praise God at this point. But invite God to come and move towards you so that God can reveal the good that He wants to do with the doubts that may be in our hearts. Let me pray. Father God, I thank You for Your wonderful kindness to us. Lord, that your Son, Jesus Christ, wants to come and meet us. 
He wants to reveal Himself to us. He wants to do a work through us. Lord, there will be doubts about what You're doing and why You're doing it. We won't understand suffering and pain and hardship and loss and grief. Lord, those can create doubts that You know what's best. But Lord, in the midst of those doubts, may we discover the Christ that Thomas experienced where he then finally said, My Lord and my God, and blessed are those who believe even without seeing. Lord, bless us as we trust you even in the midst of uncertainty. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.